Would you open your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 4. There are a lot of places we could go for Easter Sunday, but this is where the Lord drew my attention. So find Romans, and I'm going to read about four verses for us. I'm going to begin in verse 23. Would you stand, please, once you find it? And I'm going to read Romans 4, starting with verse 23 and going to 5.1. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we rejoice in the truth of the risen Christ. And we thank you for this opportunity to be together, to be together in this place today, to sing your praises, and to meditate on the truth of the resurrection and what it means to us. Lord, I thank you for each person here, each individual, as well as each family represented here, any who are joining us online. Lord, I pray that you would teach your word to us today. We know ultimately that you, Holy Spirit, are the one who guides us into truth, brings things into our remembrance, and teaches us. And we ask that you would do that today. And Lord, I ask that you would use me to do that, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me and empower me to teach your word accurately and clearly. Lord, give us understanding of these things, these terms of salvation as well as the resurrection, that we would understand what we're reading, but that beyond that we would know how it applies to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive. And we pray that you would grow and produce great fruit out of your word planted in our hearts today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, I told you a little bit about how I came to preach on It Is Finished. That was the phrase that I couldn't get out of my mind. When I come up on Easter or some other holiday that I'm planning to preach a topical sermon, I have to figure out, all right, where am I going to go? What passage are we going to look at? What verse are we going to look at? That was the one that stood out and really I couldn't get away from. Same thing for this week. The phrase I have been unable to get away from is raised for our justification. May not be the first thing you think about for Easter. I understand that. We read our, our scripture reading in the book of John so that we could read again one of the accounts of finding the empty tomb and rejoice in that together. But when it comes down to it, the more I studied, the more I thought that these two ideas, it is finished and raised for our justification, fit together. These two phrases, they, they represent two sides of the same coin. Maybe you've heard this statement before. The resurrection is God the Father's amen in response to Jesus' words, it is finished. That's part of what we're going to look at today, that the resurrection proved that Jesus' sacrifice for sins is complete and that it was accepted by God the Father. 
So in our time together this morning, I'd like to explore the two truths that are expressed in verse 25 of this passage. And frankly, we'll spend more time on the second one because we talked about it is finished and our sin debt being paid last week. So here's the verse. This is Romans 4.25. Would you read that out loud? I have it on the screen. Read it out loud with me, please. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So you can probably see it right there in front of you. Two ideas. There are two parts to that verse. Number one, Jesus was crucified for our sins. Number two, Jesus was raised for our justification. Crucified for our sins, raised for our justification. You say, I already knew that, Bob. Good. Then this is a reminder to you this morning. Peter wrote in his epistle, it's not a labor. It's not a bad thing for me to remind you, to stir up in you these things. So it's not bad for us to remind ourselves this morning of the resurrection and what it means to our salvation, and particularly that term justification. We'll talk about that. But to get there, we need to set the stage a little bit for Romans chapter 4, and that means we need to talk about Abraham. Just a little bit. Abraham, patriarch. You can read more about him in Genesis. Large section on Abraham. And I found one summary of verses 18 to 22 of this passage that described it this way. Abraham was declared righteous, and that's what the word justified means, so we'll come back to that. Abraham was declared righteous not because of something he did for the Lord or by virtue of the fact that he proved himself to the Lord, but because he simply believed in the Lord. Abraham was declared righteous because he believed in the Lord. So I hope you're wondering with me, if you're not already aware, what did he believe? What did he believe in order to be declared righteous? That God could do something that seemed impossible. Specifically, bring life from death. Well, what do you mean? He believed that God would give him a son when he and Sarah were much too old to have children. You say, how old were they? He was 99, she was 89. Now, I don't know if you know any older parents but I don't know any that old. I even looked it up. There's an interesting chart on Wikipedia about oldest fathers and mothers, and, and you're not going to find anybody that old where the father and the mother were that old and had children naturally. It just doesn't happen. This was miraculous because they were, the passage says, as good as dead. For reproductive purposes, they were dead. There was no way that was going to happen. And yet he believed because nothing is impossible to God. He believed. Vernon McGee described Sarah's womb this way. The womb of Sarah was a tomb. It was a place of death. But out of that tomb came life. So even in the case of Abraham, God brought life out of something that was figuratively dead. And physically, medically, we could say pretty much dead. They were too old to have children. But it says, Abraham didn't stagger at the promise. He was strengthened in his faith. He believed God. What did he believe about God? That God could bring life out of something that was otherwise dead. That God could speak things into existence. Could bring things into existence that weren't already there. Now, before we move on, I'd like to make one application of that principle of God being able to bring something back to life or God being able to bring life out of something that's dead. And that's the spiritual application of salvation because it really works the same way. 
So we put it this way, God must wait until the sinner is dead and unable to help himself before he can release his saving power. As long as the lost sinner thinks he is strong enough to do anything to please God, he cannot be saved by grace. It was when Abraham admitted that he was dead that God's power went to work in his body. It is when the lost sinner confesses that he's spiritually dead and unable to help himself that God can save him. Anyone in this room who's a believer, there had to come a point at which you realized, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself. Now, you may not have realized, especially if you were a child when you got saved, that I was spiritually dead. You may not have known that, but that was the description of you. That's a biblical description of you from Ephesians, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. But God raised us to life. So that little bit of background about Abraham and Sarah, they were too old to have a child, and yet God had promised, Abraham, not only are you going to have a child, you're going to be the father of many nations. In fact, look up at the sky. You're going to have more descendants than the stars of heaven. Look down at your feet. You're going to have more descendants than the sands, the grains of sand. And whether you look up or look down, be reminded, I have a promise in store for you. And as absurd as that would have seemed, as impossible as that would have seemed, Abraham believed God's promise, and God applied that as righteousness for him. Let's go back to where we started here, verse 23. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. Okay, we're just kind of jumping into this, so we need to define some things. It. Now, it was not written. Well, what was it? the statement about God counting Abraham's faith as righteousness. If you have your Bible there, open in Romans 4. Look up your page or look back if you need to. Romans 4, 3 says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What was? His faith in God. His belief in God's promise. So here, Paul is the human author of Romans, and he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Moses, who wrote Genesis. You can find that later if you want to in Genesis 15, 6. And he's saying, what does the scripture say? What does what we would call the Old Testament say? What does Genesis say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, that's the statement. That's the it at the beginning of verse 23. Now, it, that statement, was not written for his sake alone, but also for us. These words weren't written just for Abraham. Matter of fact, Abraham never read those words. They were written later by Moses. So it wasn't written for Abraham. It was written for us. Who's the us? All believers of all ages who've read that to help us understand that people in the Old Testament, Abraham included, were saved the same way we are, by faith. By faith in God. So it's written to explain how Abraham could be made right with God because he believed and God counted that belief as righteousness. So it wasn't written just for him, it was written for all of us. And then we have another it. It was imputed to him. What was imputed to him? Righteousness. According to verse 3 that we read a minute ago. So what's righteousness? Righteousness is doing or being what is right or just or proper. That's a dictionary definition. Theologically, it means being right with God and having a right relationship with him. So I have a question. Are we as humans righteous, right with God, on our own? Go like this. No, we weren't. 
we have a problem, and it's called sin, breaking God's laws. So we are not right with God on our own. Romans 3, 9, and 10, just the previous chapter, puts it this way. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. We're all spiritually dead without Christ. Before we believe on Jesus, we're not righteous, we're not right with God, and we're not going to be. We don't understand, we're not going to seek after him on our own. So is there anything you or I can do to become right with God on our own? Again, shake your head. No. No. Then how do we get right with God? And the answer is that he does it. He does that for us. He declares us to be righteous. When he does that, do we become instantaneously righteous? Does he just zap us with his magic wand of righteousness? No. He declares us to be righteous. He declares us to be righteous and treats us as if we were righteous because of the perfect life of Jesus. So if you don't remember anything else I say about justification today, please remember this. Justification is being declared righteous. It is being declared righteous. It's not being made righteous. That's not quite the same thing. He declares us to be righteous. He says, you are righteous, even though I wasn't, even though I'm still not. He says, you are righteous because of what Christ has done. To justify, Charles Ryrie wrote, was a legal term meaning to secure a favorable verdict, to acquit, to vindicate, to declare righteous, like I already told you. So in modern terms, it would be like being declared not guilty. But that's not all it means. There's more to it than that. Growing up, I learned this definition of justification, and maybe some of you did as well. That justification is God's forgiving me and treating me just as if I had never sinned. How many of you have heard that before? A few, okay. That's what I grew up learning. That is a true statement. I'm not here to, to put that down. But it's not a complete statement. And that's what I want you to see today, and that's how this ties into the resurrection. I have somewhat of a number line here I want to show you. And this is not a perfect illustration, I'm sure. But this is what that definition of treating me just as if I had never sinned, this is what that looks like. And maybe it's not there because Steve's just kind of looking at me. Do we have it? Okay, good. Justification is that my debt of sin is paid, and my record of sin has been erased. If you were here last week, we talked about that, didn't we? We, we talked from Colossians 2 about having our sins wiped away. That list of sins was nailed to his cross. Hopefully you remember that from last week. But if God just, if he treats us just as if I'd never sinned, then that brings us to zero, he said that's morally neutral. He doesn't leave it there. Not only has God taken away the debt of our sin, but he's also given us his righteousness. And that's where that word impute comes in. I bet none of you have used the word impute in a sentence this week. I haven't except studying for this. So impute means to credit, to ascribe, or to attribute. It's to charge something to the account of another. 
Years ago, I worked for Nordstrom, and I was a manager, and I had a corporate card. So some of you are in the same boat. You have a company card, and you use that and book your travel or pay for expenses or whatever, and you're, you're accountable for what you spend, but is that your money that you're spending? No, it's somebody else's money. You are using that card, and it's somebody else's money. That's the idea here of impute, that you are going to use somebody else's, not money, righteousness. That you are going to have Jesus' righteousness, the perfect life that he lived, applied to you. When does God credit us with righteousness? When we believe on Jesus Christ as Savior. And how does he do that? Well, it's an act of God. Justification, declaring us righteous. It's an act of God. He takes the initiative. One of my study Bibles says, he provides the means through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the sinner who believes in Christ receives God's gift of righteousness, which then enables God to pronounce him righteous. We understand that Jesus is our substitute. I hope you understand that. We talked about that some last week. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. Why did he have to do that? Because the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. So he died in my place. He was my substitute. He was your substitute. But that sinless life that he lived, never doing anything wrong, never fighting with his brothers or sisters, never disobeying his parents or talking back, never breaking the law, the perfect life that he lived was also a substitute. So that when God the Father looks at us, he sees us clothed, is the picture in the New Testament. Clothed, wearing the robes of righteousness that belong to Jesus. We are in Christ. If we've trusted Christ as Savior, we are in him. And when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. Because I don't have anything to add for me. That's sometimes called the great exchange. Verse 24 says, it shall be imputed, there's that word again, to us who believe, that's what we're talking about, by faith, believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's God, the Father. Raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. It's been described this way. When we believe, an exchange takes place. We give Christ our sins and he gives us his righteousness and forgiveness. There's nothing we can do to earn this. Only through Christ can we receive God's righteousness. Here's the verse that goes with that great exchange idea. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, lived a perfect life, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That in Christ, I get his righteousness applied to my life. I am declared righteous. So now if we take that idea of the great exchange, I give my sins to Jesus. He gives me his righteousness. Now we come back to this diagram, and I added some, didn't I? Not only is our debt taken care of, that negative direction, that brings me to zero. He died in my place. He took the penalty for my sins. But it doesn't stop there. It goes beyond that. I get his righteousness. His righteousness gets applied to me. I am justified, declared righteous. Now, in a way, all that was introduction. So here we go with main point number one. 
Jesus was crucified for our sins. Look at verse 25. Who was delivered up because of our offenses. Who? Jesus. Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses. What does it mean that he was delivered up? Or your translation may say delivered over. That means to give over, to deliver up treacherously. Let me give you one cross-reference that'll show how this word is used and how it's translated other places. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, go this way. Jesus is describing his upcoming death to his disciples. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, talking about himself, will be betrayed, there's our word, given up, given over, betrayed, to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Verse 19, and deliver him, that's our word, deliver him up, give him over to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. That's what this means. What are we talking about? We're talking about the crucifixion, that Jesus died in my place in order to allow for the forgiveness of my sins. So it says, who was delivered up? Jesus was crucified because of our offenses. Because of, may not be what your translation says. Most of the other translations that I would normally read or recommend have for, F-O-R. Why is that? Okay. This word for can mean one of two things. It can mean because of, or it can mean in order to produce. Well, we know it's when it is here, just logically. Did Jesus die in order to produce sin in us? Certainly not. He died because of our sins. He died in our place because of our sins. So this first one, for, makes sense, and because of, makes good sense. Now I'm going to try to illustrate this. Let's pretend that I got a speeding ticket. All right, I got a speeding ticket. Yes, I have gotten a speeding ticket before, but not for a long time. Praise the Lord. I got a speeding ticket, and when I showed up to court, the judge said my fine had already been paid by somebody else. That's cool. I got there, and my fine has already been paid. That's good news. I no longer owe any debt for my offense. When we looked at Colossians 2 together last week and saw that those sins, that list of sins had been wiped away and nailed to his cross. It's done away with. It's forgiven. It's gone. It's, it's wiped clean. That's the idea. We don't have a debt for our sins anymore. That was an encouraging study for me. I hope that was good news to you as well. But now let's apply that to my illustration. Not only has my fine been paid, but my record has been expunged. It's been wiped out. There's no record that I broke the law. There's no evidence anywhere that I ever exceeded the speed limit or broke any other rules of the road while driving. It's all gone. There's no record of it. But here's the question. In terms of justification, do I have any righteousness? Is there anybody who has come to my defense in that courtroom? Yeah, that's great. The debt's been paid. That's, that's nice. Yes, we've taken care of his record. He has no record anymore. But I will testify that he has never made any mistake behind the wheel of a vehicle. Is there anybody who will do that for me? No. There's not going to be anybody in the courtroom to say, he has never done anything wrong, never made a mistake while driving or parking or whatever. No, that's not going to happen. But let's look at the second half of verse 25. This is our second point. Jesus was raised for our justification. 
It says, and was raised because of our justification. Raised. Raised from the dead. That's what we're talking about. Resurrection. This is Resurrection Day. Resurrection Sunday. He was raised because of our justification. And this time, I'm going to say that because of is not the best way to translate that. If your translation says for, F-O-R, great. I think that's understandable to us. Or if you have, in order to produce, I doubt any of you have that in your translation, but that's what it means. He was raised because of, in order to produce, our justification. If Jesus were still dead, if he hadn't risen, verse 24 would not be true. And the great exchange we talked about from 2 Corinthians 5.21 never could have happened. It wouldn't exist. Paul addressed this in 1 Corinthians 15. If you haven't read 1 Corinthians 15 yet during this resurrection day season, you should do that. Do that this afternoon. 1 Corinthians 15, the, the resurrection chapter of the Bible. Paul goes through this argument, and he says, here's what it would look like if Christ had not risen. Here's some of the things he comes up with. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty. Your faith is empty. We are liars. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have already died, they've perished. There's no hope for them. But then he gets to verse 20, and here's what he says. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Christ is risen. So all of those things that would be so tragic if he hadn't risen aren't true. They fly out the window. But some of you, I'm sure, are still wondering, okay, Bob, all that's nice. I knew that. What's the connection between the resurrection and justification? Why does Paul, all of a sudden, after talking about Abraham, come to these last two verses and mention the resurrection and then specifically say that Jesus was raised because of our justification. Maybe this will help. John MacArthur said that the resurrection provided proof that God had accepted the sacrifice of his son, and that way he would be able to be just and still justified, declare righteous, the ungodly. So I want you to imagine that I have a certificate of authenticity. I don't know if any of you have one of those at home. Maybe you have some valuable item from a collection or something like that, a piece of jewelry, I don't know. But something, a piece of paper, maybe it's notarized, I don't know, but it has a special stamp on it to say, this is it, this is the real thing. I want you, in your mind, to consider the resurrection to be the stamp of approval, the certificate of authenticity that Jesus was who he said he was, that the sacrifice for sin has been accepted he is the son of man he is the messiah he is the son of god and all those prophecies about his death and resurrection were fulfilled god had accepted the sacrifice of jesus on our behalf his wrath had been poured out on jesus we talked about that last week poured out on jesus during those three hours of darkness separated from the father for the first time and only time ever he bore god's wrath in our place, substitution. It was poured out on Jesus instead of on us. And God the Father demonstrated his satisfaction. There are fancy terms for that too, expiation and others, to say, it's finished, and I accept this sacrifice for sin. This meets the standard of righteousness. This 
meets the penalty for sin. I accept it. It is getting my stamp of approval. It is real. It is authentic. It is good. I approve. And that's what God the Father said when he raised Jesus from the dead. What else? What is Jesus doing for us right now? He has ascended. 40 days after the resurrection, he ascended and he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us. He is praying for you and for me. He is acting as our lawyer, if you will. Because one of the names of Satan is the accuser of the brethren. We talked about that in our study of Revelation. So what does Satan do? Just like in the book of Job, he comes and he makes accusation. Look at her. Look at what she did. She claims to be your child. What's the deal? What about him? He's such a hypocrite. He doesn't act like a Christian. And any time Satan brings an accusation against a believer, Jesus is there acting as our defense attorney. And he can tell God the Father, based on the acceptance of the resurrection, the fact that the sacrifice was accepted, no, he's one of ours. I died for him. And I was raised from the dead to prove that you accepted that as the payment. Just like in my courtroom situation, somebody paid my debt. Debt is paid. He is righteous because of me. He is forgiven because of me. She is my child. She belongs to me. And she is declared righteous because of what I have done. So he's declaring us righteous. He's interceding for us. He is advocating for us. What is this verse saying? Our sin was the reason for his death. Our justification was the reason for his resurrection. Someone said, in his death, he identified with us such that our punishment became his. So also in his resurrection, he identified with us such that his resurrection, sorry, his righteousness became ours. Now there's a lot more we could talk through about this. I'm intentionally not trying to get more involved in that this morning. But what I want you to understand and remember is that our right standing with God is possible because of both the crucifixion and the resurrection. It takes both. And that resurrection is the stamp of approval. It's proving that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus in your place and in my place. Jesus was crucified for our sins and he was raised for our justification. Paul talked about this a little bit more in chapter 8 of Romans. You can flip over there if you want to. I'll put that on the screen also. But Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? What things? Well, he's been talking for the chapter and, and saying things like, All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Rhetorical question. The answer is no one. He who did not spare his own son, but here's that word again, delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God didn't spare his own son, but gave him in our place, how will he not give us all good things? Verse 33, a little bit more to the point. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Because Satan would like to. 
Who will condemn one of us who believe in Christ? He answers it this way. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Who's, who's around to condemn? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who in the world, Paul is saying, can condemn us? Who can accuse us? Satan would like to, but can anybody? No. Because the only righteous person, if I can say it that way, in the world, in existence, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Our triune God is holy and just and righteous and good. Nobody else is. And the one who is completely holy and righteous has declared us to be righteous because we are in Jesus. So there's nobody else to condemn us. That's how he started the chapter. I mentioned this verse last week. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are, what? In Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That may be a lot for you to think about today. You were maybe coming in expecting, all right, let's just read the Easter story. I know that story. I can probably recite it. Can I be honest with you? I would have liked that better. Rochelle's laughing. I, I struggled with this sermon this week, trying to figure out how much detail do I get into. Lord, is this really what you want me to? How about we do Matthew, Lord? I've done that before. But this is what he laid on my heart. And so I believe somebody in this room needs this. I needed it. Maybe somebody online. I don't know. But the idea that the resurrection is very important. I think we know that. The resurrection is important because it defeats death and sin and hell. And, and we know that. We talked about that in Revelation. I think all of you know that. But he, have you considered the resurrection is important because it proves that Jesus did what he came to do. It proves that God the Father accepted that sacrifice so that we could be declared righteous, so that we could have a right standing with God. It was necessary. It wasn't just an add-on or a, here, let's fix the problem. It was part of the plan to prove Jesus died for our sin, was raised for our justification. So my question to anyone here, anyone online, are you right with God today? I said earlier, we can't do that on our own. That's impossible. There's nothing for me to elevate myself, to get up to God. There's nothing that I can do enough good to outweigh my bad and make it okay. I'm dependent entirely and only on Jesus and what he did for me. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died in my place to take the penalty for my sin. Somebody had to die for my sin. Jesus did it. Are you believing that? If you ask him to take away your sin, he will. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've already done that, you are justified because Christ is risen. No one, including Satan, can bring any charge against any of God's elect. Because Jesus is our lawyer. He is alive. He is risen. He is in heaven with God, and he is pleading our case, interceding for us, praying for us, defending us. Telling Satan or anybody else who wants to bring an accusation, they're mine. They are blood-bought. They are righteous because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And the idea is that if that were to play out, then God the Father could say, 
Case dismissed. There is no evidence. This case is dropped like it never happened because the evidence isn't sufficient to convict. That's what he did for us. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. And what do we have to do? We believe. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. How do we come right with God? By believing in Jesus and his finished work, dying in our place, being raised so that we can be declared righteous. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is there anybody who would say that God is speaking to me in a specific way this morning and I'm going to ask you to pray for me, Bob, as you close the service? I won't mention your name. I'm not going to embarrass you. But if there's a spiritual need, a burden on your heart that you'd like me to pray about, would you let me know that by either lifting your hand and putting it back down or making eye contact with me, look up long enough to make eye contact with me, and then look back down? Father, you are so good. You are so kind that by your grace you have provided us with eternal life. Lord, you love the world so much that you gave your only son so that all those who will believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And we rejoice in that promise today, Lord. And we rejoice in a risen Savior today, one who is at your right hand interceding pleading on our behalf, defending us so that no one can bring a charge against us because of what he has done, dying in our place and being raised to life to show your approval of him, your satisfaction in his sacrifice. Help us to rejoice in these truths. Help us to apply them to our lives this week. Help us to share them with others. We pray in Jesus' name.